And please turn in your Bibles for the last time, at least in this study, to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 4, please. I always hate to come to the end of a a Bible book study because I feel like I'm leaving a friend behind as I turn to some other Bible book or a study, uh, and uh, I will miss this book. It has been a great study. One of Sue's jobs years ago was as a teacher's assistant in the Tukwila School District, and one of her tasks one year was to give an evaluation test for the young children to see if they were ready for some particular educational step, and one of the tests was snapping your fingers. And so she brings this particular little little boy in, I believe, and says, uh, can you snap your fingers? And he gets a real kind of pained look, and he goes, okay. <laughs> he thought he was going to have to pop his knuckles or something. But it was not going to be pleasant. Communication is an art. Sometimes what we say isn't heard as we intended That's why God communicated some of his truth through real-life examples and real-life situations. Really a stroke of genius by God, and and, and please, I I don't say that flippantly. God could have have laid out a, a, a whole set of propositions, sort of like the constitution to an organization or something. But he didn't. And one of the people that he worked through greatly is the man that we call the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was used to write 13 out of the 27 New Testament books. And there are a great many times when Paul speaks out of his life. And and it's important for you to know, if you don't know, it's not just him talking. It's God putting his truth through the hands and feet of the Apostle Paul. And, and it's important also to understand that God didn't use him because he was a perfect example. Like he did everything just right and so God used him. Or because his circumstances were so humanly perfect. Much more so, God used him to write some of his truth as it was fleshed out in his life to show us a man working to follow Christ as best he could according to God's truth. And that's what I think makes this last section of Timothy um, extremely valuable, rather than what it could seem like to some, which is just a random collection of parting thoughts. Follow as I read, please, from 2 Timothy 4, starting in verse 9. Be diligent to come to me quickly. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and he has departed for Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. And Tychicus, for I have sent, I have sent to Ephesus. Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come, and the books, especially bring the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You also must be aware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. At my first defense, 
No one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth, but Trophimus I have left in Miletus sick. Do your utmost to come before winter. Eubulus greets you as well as Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. What do we learn from these statements that seem to be a random collection? Well, there are a whole series of truths that we could learn. I have chosen to see them, if you will, through the lens of humility. Humility. The Apostle Paul, I believe, was writing this book of 2 Timothy to Timothy to say, Timothy, I'm leaving. I'm in jail. I'm going to be uh, martyred. I'm not going to be around anymore. And you, Timothy, you have to be strong now. You have to stand on your own two feet. Um, It's normal in the Christian life that when somebody first comes to faith in Christ, they lean heavily on the Christian family, and they should. And there's a sense in which we continue to lean on those who are more mature than us, but as we grow up in the Lord, more and more we have to stand with the Lord on our own two feet and do the ministry that He's called us to do, whether there are others helping or not. And, Tim, and Paul is getting Timothy ready for that day. And certainly Timothy had an extra need to be strong, which was that he was a leader of at least a church or churches, possibly a group of churches in the area called Ephesus. And so Paul is getting him ready to be strong. And, and what I see in this final example from Paul is almost a little flip of the coin to say, being strong doesn't mean that I don't have needs and concerns and need help. And I believe that that is one of the first things that we understand about Paul's humility, that it's seen in his openness about his needs. Verse 9, be diligent to come to me quickly. Verse 13, Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come, and the books, especially the parchments. Um, Verse 21, do your utmost to come before winter. Verse 12, he says, I've sent Tychicus to Ephesus. The Apostle Paul was in prison with only Luke able to be around and to help him out. And he says, Timothy, I'm all alone in this stinking place. Come and help me. And he says, come before winter. Now, why would he say come before winter? Obviously, he needed the coat, the cloak, the heavy, was a heavy outer garment made of wool. He needed that, and they used it not just to wear, but like a blanket. But he also said come before winter because in that part of the world, in that time in the world, if you didn't leave before winter, the ships didn't traverse the Mediterranean from November to March. And you the only way you could make that whole trek would be to walk. And so he's saying, Timothy, 
hurry up and come now while there's still time. You can catch a boat and you can make most of your trip that way and, uh, and so on. Even so, what he was asking Timothy to do would take several months. Can you imagine somebody calling you up and saying, can you please come help me? And, and you know that to say yes means I'm going to be on a months long trip before I even get there. <laughs> That's quite a request. And I don't think it though it's self-centered. I think it's humble. The Apostle Paul is saying, I need help. How good are you at saying, I need help? Sometimes in the church we give ministry and sometimes we receive ministry. But it seems that there's a lot of us that aren't too good at saying, Help. Help, I'm struggling in my family. Help, I'm struggling at work. Help, I'm struggling here, there. I have this habit problem. I have this issue. One of the marvelous things we see here is the Apostle Paul asking for help. Now, this is the guy that God used to write 13 out of 27 New Testament books. If it was okay for him to ask for help, shouldn't it be okay for us to ask for help? Humility is seen in an openness about needs. How are you doing today? Oh, fine. I'm fine. Everything's fine. Everything's wonderful. How are you? How are you, Ruth? You're fine. I have a habit that I think puts some people off a little bit. They'll say, how are you doing today? And I go, I have to stop taking inventory. I don't say that, but I'm kind of thinking, I want to be honest. Hmm, pretty good. Not bad. A little painful. Whatever it is. (laughs) How are we at flat out saying, I need help? Paul's humility is seen in his openness about needs. The second lesson that we see here about humility from Paul is this. Paul's humility is seen in his acceptance of growth in people. (laughs) Do you remember when Paul was in prison early in his ministry and God sent an angel to open the doors. Excuse me, that might have been Peter. I, I may not have done all my research all the way. But God sent an angel to open the doors. I think it was Peter. And he came out to where they're having a prayer meeting. Here's the important part. There was a guy who lived in that house named John Mark. The guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark. He would have been like a, a kid, a teenager in the home. If you go back in in the book of Acts, it says that John Mark lived there. And so John Mark was in this group of Christians, got saved, and time moves on, and we pick up the story of his life at Acts 15. And apparently, at some point, he was picked up by Paul and Barnabas to go with them and to be a helper on missionary journeys, but look what happened. Now, Barnabas was determined 
this came later in this process. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John, who was called Mark. But Paul insisted they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone to the work with them. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. This is a fascinating little episode for several reasons. But what you understand, first of all, is they went out on a missionary trip, and, and Mark was with Barnabas and Paul and probably others, and they got to a certain point, and Mark said, I'm going home. We don't know why. Scripture doesn't say. Uh, he just quit. And because of that, later on, they came to a time when Paul and Barnabas were going to go out again, and Barnabas said, let's bring Mark with us. And Paul said, we're not taking that quitter with us. And Barnabas and Paul, it says, the contention became so sharp that they went their separate ways. Now, what's interesting, I think, is we see the difference between the ministry of Paul and the ministry of Barnabas. What was Barnabas's ministry? It seems to have been personal discipleship. Who was one of the guys that Barnabas personally discipled? The Apostle Paul. <laughs> and then later on, here he is with Mark. Now, what was Paul's ministry like? It was not so much personal discipleship as establishing the church on a grand scale, if you will, or the large scale. Paul was working on this big scale that demanded absolute uh, a commitment, whereas Barnabas was going along and nurturing up individuals. And God doesn't correct either one. He didn't say, Paul, you were wrong, or Barnabas, you were wrong. But what we see here in 2 Timothy is, uh, dare I say, the, the end of the story. Look at verse 11 in Paul's instruction to Timothy. When Timothy comes, he says, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. What does that mean? That means Mark had a failure, and Mark had some restorative discipleship with Barnabas, and now Paul is saying, bring Mark! Now what does that say about Paul's humility? It says hum his humility was seen in his acceptance of growth. It's real easy to draw a box around a person and say, that's where that person is. But the Apostle Paul wasn't so proud to do that. He said, I'm thrilled that Mark has grown. In fact, I want him here with me to do the Lord's work together with me. As time had moved along, Mark had grown, and Paul was humble enough to say, praise the Lord for Mark's growth. He didn't hold a grudge. He didn't put Mark into a box of identity from which he could not escape. 
In fact, if you look at the book of Colossians, which is sort of in the midstream between Mark's failure and this time of 2 Timothy, if you look at the book of Colossians, Paul commends him here, commends him there for the task that he had done. The third thing we understand about humility here from Paul is this. Paul's humility is seen in his desire to grow. Look at verse 13. Paul said, Timothy, when you come, bring the coat that I left with Carpus at Troas and bring the books, especially the parchments. You know what I thought of when I thought of this first of all today? Does Timothy have a donkey? To pack those books? Does he have a Sherpa? Uh, I, you know, books in that day, I mean, uh, you, you, here's the whole Bible. You can get the whole Bible a lot smaller. But in that day, to have portions of the Word of God would have been huge. And we, we're not told what these books are, but our best guess is that they were portions of the Word of God. One of the reasons I think that is because, can you imagine Paul telling Timothy to bring him the latest novel based on Greek mythology? Hey, Timothy, have you heard about that new book? Bring that to me, man. I'm, I am bored stiff here in jail, and I heard that that Hercules story is just outstanding. <laughs> Can you imagine? No! The Apostle Paul says, man, I want to read the Bible. The books is probably a reference to the Old Testament. The parchment is probably a reference to more newer things that had just been written. Bring those to me. But you know what it tells me about Paul? He wasn't done growing and understanding God's truth until he breathed his last. And it also tells me that God, that Paul didn't just get all of his knowledge straight from God, like God went zap, there it is, write the book of Colossians. A lot of Paul's knowledge came from his previous study of the Old Testament and his ongoing study of the Old Testament. That's why he could write some of the things that he did. Um, look at what Paul says about growth in Philippians 3. Not that I've already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I don't count myself to have already gotten a hold of complete Christ-likeness. That's what he means. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. One of the thoughts I want you to grab today is this. Christian maturity is defined as growth. We tend to think of maturity as a place we get to. Oh, here I am mature now. Now, there is in this statement by Paul the idea of relative maturity. In other words, if you've grown up in the Lord to a certain level, you should have the mind. But what mind is it? The mind that says, I'm supposed to be growing. That is what Christian maturity is about. I'm pretty sure if I asked you today, do you know it all? 
You say, oh, no, no, I don't know at all. But you know what we're tempted to say sometimes? I know enough. I know enough. Say, oh, I'd never say that. Let me ask you this. If you really think you don't know enough, if you really think you aren't mature enough, then what would be true in your life? What would be true is you would be like, Lord, help me remember her name. Sweet lady that's with the Lord now. I went to visit her at the, at the, uh, the, the rest home over here, the assisted living. She was in her 90s. No, not Laura. Uh, oh. Lucille. Lucille. Somebody had, I'd gotten a call, said they put Lucille on the hospice. So I went over there to see her, and I walked in, and she looked up from her book. Lucille knew the Word of God, and she was working on knowing more. Apparently, Lucille didn't know enough. Do you know enough? See, sometimes we learn enough to get by. People do this in college. You know, you can learn to write papers and kind of learn to parrot stuff back and get the degree and whatnot, but maybe not really be that smart. Do you know enough or are you constantly trying to press forward? The Apostle Paul said, bring the books, bring the parchments. I mean, the guy's facing execution within months. He says, I don't know enough. Paul's humility is also seen in his rest in God's justice. Look at verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. We don't know for certain if this is the same Alexander. There is an Alexander mentioned in the book of uh, Acts, uh, some events that went on. We don't know if it's him or not. We just know here's a guy. And the name Alexander was very common, and that's why they put the tag on the end. They didn't have last names in that day. They would say Alexander the coppersmith. That's different from Alexander the silversmith or, or whatever. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You also must be aware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. Somehow what we know of him is he did not like the Christian truth. He did not like faith in Christ, and, and so he greatly resisted and did Paul much harm. The thing that we see about Paul's humility comes right out of something that he wrote in Romans 12. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, don't avenge yourself but rather give place to wrath. In other words, control your wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The Apostle Paul wasn't sitting in prison all bitter and angry, saying, boy, that Alexander, I'd like to give him a piece of my mind. He said, no, he did me much harm. The Lord will take care of that. And I get the impression that he said, the Lord will take care of that, and he went on with his business. Now, he told Timothy to be careful. You know, God told the apostles when he sent them out for the last time, be as wise as a serpent or a snake, 
and be as uh, harmless as doves. In other words, you're supposed to be supposed to be gracious, but be careful. And so he says, "Look, be careful." Paul went about the business God had called him to, but he put Alexander in God's hands. It takes the humility of Christ not to take revenge. It takes the humility of Christ not to seek the pound of flesh that we think we are owed. Paul's humility is seen in his rest in God's justice. Fifthly, Paul's humility is seen in his forgiving spirit. I'll look at verse 10, please. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and he has departed for Thessalonica. Unlike John Mark, when John Mark bailed out of Pamphylia, we don't know anything about why he bailed out. Here, we have a guy named Demas, and if you were to look at uh, other scripture you would find out that Demas was a, a faithful helper in times past. He wasn't just sort of a newbie that failed. He, he had been a faithful helper. But now Paul says, Demas has forsaken me because he loved this present world. Now, we could imagine, I think, fairly easily that, that the Apostle Paul is in a hard circumstance. Okay? In that day, and, and, and like uh, perhaps many places in the world now, uh, you can take food to the prisoner in the jail. Uh, you can't do that in our jails. You can't take anything to them, really. But you could do that in that day, and, and, and apparently people were coming and going, ministering to Paul, and somehow it appears that that got tough. Or maybe it was just tough to live by faith, and Demas said, you know, I've got a really good job back in Thessalonica. He said, Paul, dude, they're going to kill you anyway. I'm out of here. And he went. But what does Paul do? He is forgiving. Look at verse 16. At my first defense... This probably means his first appearance. There was a two-appearance system in the Roman court, sort of like making the charges at first and then the actual trial after that. At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. What was Paul's attitude? He had an attitude of forgiveness. It sounds very much like Christ on the cross, doesn't it? What did Christ say as they're nailing him on the cross, as they're gambling for his clothing? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How about this, if you want to really make this personal for Paul? What's one of the first episodes we read of the Apostle Paul's life in the book of Acts? Do, 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 do. What? He was present at the stoning of Stephen. He held the coats of the people who killed Stephen for preaching Jesus Christ. He gave the approval to what they were doing. He had the authority coming out of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem to say, go ahead and stone him. And what did Stephen say while he was dying? <laughs> Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Would that make an impression on you if you're an old crusty Saul standing there going, 
Wow, I've never seen that before. And here's Paul, all the way at the end of his life. Demas runs off. Everybody, no one showed up for court. Here's Paul standing in front of Nero, standing in front of the Roman court by himself, and he says, don't hold it against him, God. He had a forgiving spirit. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. The Apostle Paul did not let the root of bitterness grow up into the tree of bitterness. I knew a man years ago, I used to have coffee with him once in a while, this is in another state, far, far away, and the man's face looked like this, kind of, really did. Even when he smiled, it still kind of had that look with a little, with a little up there. And I kid you not, when we would have coffee from time to time, he often rehearsed the same hurts of his life. Some of them were professional. Some of them were personal. He was a bitter man. And the chief one who had become defiled was him. (laughs) The Apostle Paul... I mean, he's at one of the most critical points in his life, and everybody deserts him. People who had been faithful in the past, they all left. And he says, may it not be charged against them. Paul's humility seen in his forgiving spirit. Number six, Paul's humility is seen in his vision of God's plan. Look at verse 17. In contrast of verse 16, where nobody stood with him, verse 17, but the Lord stood with me. Have you ever heard this little phrase? You and God makes a majority. The Lord stood with me, and he strengthened me, so that the message might be preached fully through me, And that all the Gentiles might hear, also I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord will deliver me. (laughs) Paul wanted to go to Rome to preach the gospel. But he didn't want to go the way that he ended up going, which was as a prisoner. But listen to this from Acts 23. Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, this was the big uprising in Ephesus, There was a riot. Fearing that Paul might be pulled to pieces by the crowd, he commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him to the barracks. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified of me in Jerusalem, so you must bear witness at Rome. And the Apostle Paul thought, Great, I get to go to Rome to preach the gospel. I've been wanting to do that. course you're going to go as a prisoner you're going to be in jail 
What is Paul's reflection on all of that while he's about to be martyred, to be killed for his faith? What is his reflection? The Lord stood by me. The Lord strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. Are you so willing to submit to God's plan that when God's plan isn't as good as your plan in your eyes, that you say, the Lord did His work through me. Praise the Lord. Only humble people can say yes to God like that. Only humble people can say yes to God in a hospital bed, in the unemployment line. Arrogant people try to tell God how to do his business. Now listen, bud, this is not right. I do not deserve this. You need to fix this. The Apostle Paul humanly just went through all kinds of hardship, and he says, but the message was fully preached. He rejoiced in God's plan, and he also had confidence in God's protection. He had confidence in God's protection. Verse 18, And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. The Apostle Paul did not know exactly what would be the outcome of his circumstances, but he knew without a doubt that God would be protecting him every step of the way. He had written this truth early in his life. No temptation or no test has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. The Apostle Paul said, God is going to protect me from every evil thing. Have you ever heard this little phrase? God will heal you from every disease except the one that's supposed to take you to heaven. God will protect you from every evil except the one that maybe he's going to use to bring you to heaven. The Apostle Paul, facing execution, said, God's going to protect me. And then he says, oh yeah, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Now, I'll be honest with you, I probably have 13 commentaries written by men of God of greater repute and degree than me. And all, every one of them said, that's not a real lion. He's probably talking about Nero or you know, some previous deliverance. And I just think, maybe God delivered him out of the mouth of a real lion. Something really huge was there, and, and, and he goes, oh yeah, God delivered me. And it's almost inconsequential to him. It gets one line. It gets one line because he says, God's going to take care of me. He was confident in God's protection. It feels very much to me like this episode from uh, the book of Daniel with the, with the uh, as we call them, the three children of Israel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which were Daniel's three friends. Daniel was not personally involved in this incident, but his three friends were. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, spoke to them saying, if you do not worship, worship the idol that he had set up of himself. They're supposed to fall down and worship when the music plays. He says, if you do not worship that idol, you will be immediately thrown into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. 
And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Nebuchadnezzar had a very small view of God. In other words, how big could a God be to deliver you from that? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said, uh, this is just one of those classic uh, exchanges. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. It, it, I think in the King James it says, we don't have to be careful to answer you. We, we can just say what's right on our mind. <laughs> if that is the case, that if, you know, if, if you're going to throw us into the fiery furnace, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. They said, God is well able to deliver us, but if he chooses not to, that's fine. We're still going to worship him only. The Apostle Paul is straight on his course of honoring God, of serving God, and he says, God can deliver me from every evil thing. Now, would you, would you just maybe even write down these two little state, summary statements of this? How did God deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? He delivered them through the fire. How did God deliver the Apostle Paul? He delivered the Apostle Paul by the fire. And we need to understand that sometimes it'll be one way and sometimes it'll be the other way. And we need to say with the Apostle Paul, it's okay. It's okay because God is in control. I do not run my life. Paul was pretty sure how things were going to turn out, but he was willing to let God do as he pleased, knowing it would be for his best. Number eight, Paul's humility is seen in his team spirit. Look at verse 19. Here he is. These are the last words he's going to write. And what does he say? Oh, Timothy, be sure and greet Prisca and Aquila. In the other scripture, it was Priscilla and Aquila. It's a husband and wife team. Greet Prisca and Aquila, and greet the household of Anesiphorus. Really, Paul, you're about to be executed, and, and you're concerned to say hi to your co-workers? Boy, that, that tells me something about his concept of team spirit. You know, Prisca and Aquila were, were people who discipled a guy named Apollos, who was reputed to be a very great preacher, but his doctrine was messed up. And so they took him in and they, you know, they weren't the great preachers out front, but he was. And so these, these were people that were substantial co-workers with the Apostle Paul. Paul is living in the expectation of execution, living in a cold, wretched dungeon, nearly alone, having been abandoned by anyone who could help his trial. And what does he do? He greets his teammates. Who then is Paul? Who is Apollos? We're just ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, that is the gospel seed. The Apo uh, Apollos watered, he taught and helped you to believe. But God is the one who gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything or he who waters. But God, God is the one who is something, who is anything. 
Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. The Apostle Paul didn't have such an inflated view of himself like, I'm the most important Christian there is. We look back at the Bible and we tend to think that way. But he didn't. He said, you know, I planted some seed and and other people like Apollos watered it. But God is the one who caused people to believe. And he, he said, ultimately, we're all on the same team. He used the word fellow workers a number of times in the scripture. We're all in this together. It feels to me like, like, a, like a good football player, like Jake Locker, after a winning and important game, saying, hey, it's not just about me, it's a whole team. We're all working together. Paul really believed in the whole team, not just his own personal importance. Number nine, Paul's humility is seen in his concern for people. And his concern for people. Look at verse 20. Erastus stayed in Corinth, but Trophimus I have left in Miletus sick. This is a simple thing, and yet I think it's worth taking note. You know, the Apostle Paul didn't criticize people for being on sick leave. You know, sometimes people can get so arrogant in their leadership that they think everybody else's illness is just an inconvenience for me. You know, come on, buddy, I'm in jail awaiting martyrdom. Get up off your sickbed and come here and help me. No. No, in their travels, he said, hey, you're sick, buddy. You just stay here and you've got to get well. He had a concern for people. Number 10, Paul's humility is seen in his desire for fellowship. Look at verse uh, 21 again. Do your utmost to come to me before winter. I ask the question, why is it so important for Paul to see Timothy? I mean, Paul knows he's on his way to heaven. Paul is secure in himself as a believer. Why is it so important to see Timothy? I think part of the answer comes here from Philippians 2. And Paul writes to the Philippians and he says, I I trust or I'm planning in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know of your state. He said, I'm going to send Timothy over to you. I can't come personally. I'm going to send Timothy and he'll come back and tell me how you're doing and I'll be encouraged by that. But look why he sent Timothy. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. You know what the Apostle Paul said? Timothy and I, we're right on the same wavelength. And that wavelength, of course, is a spiritual wavelength. And the Apostle Paul is, is, is working to live for the Lord at the end of his life in a terrible circumstances, facing execution, and he thinks, oh man, it would be so great if Timothy would come. He could be encouraged from other people, that's true, If we understand the text, Luke was with him in the area at least. But Paul really wanted to see what he calls in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 2 and 4, he calls Timothy his son in the faith, my true son in the faith. And he said, oh, I just want to see him one more time. That would be such a blessing. It would be such a blessing. 
Do you have that kind of fellowship with people? Sometimes I think we don't have fellowship because we are self-sufficient, which is not humble, it's arrogant. God has designed Christianity to be a team sport, and even the Apostle Paul benefited from the fellowship of a like-minded believer. Paul's humility seen in his desire for fellowship. And lastly, Paul's humility is seen in his desire for Timothy and the Ephesians. Look at verse 22. What's Paul's parting wish, Paul, Paul's parting prayer? The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, grace be with you, amen. There's actually two groups being addressed here. The first is Timothy, when he says, The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, it's written in the singular. And the second phrase should be translated, Grace be with you all, because it's in the plural. What did Paul pray for Timothy? He didn't pray fame or fortune, power or prestige, health or ease. He said, the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And grace be with all of you. A humble person wants others to have Christ. Humility is a chief Christian virtue because pride is a chief sin. Pride is the original sin. It started with Satan himself. And he tempted Adam and Eve to walk in pride. God commends us to walk in humility under him and under his word and within the church that he has created. When I was in Bible college... A well-known Christian of the time, Dr. Alan Lewis, who was the president of Baptist Mid-Missions, and that's the mission that uh, the Lancasters here were with, and uh, Iola, and, and he would be well-known to them. He was a, you know, a well-known, uh, I wouldn't use the word famous, but you know, he's a significant man in, in our Christian world, and he came to speak at the Bible college. And my uh, roommate was thinking about the ministry and thinking about greatness and how do you be a great man and so on. And he said, I'm going to go talk to him. I said, great. So he went and found where he was staying on campus and he went down and, and he basically said, how do you get to be such a great Christian? <laughs> and Dr. Lewis said, we all put our pants on one leg at a time. He was a great Christian. He was a great servant of God. There's no doubt about that. But part of the reason he was great was he saw who he was in Christ. And so it wasn't about his greatness. It was about God's greatness. The greatest strength comes out of humility, a dependence on God and a rest in Him and in what He's doing. Heavenly Father, help us to see ourselves under You, in You, and help us to humbly follow Your plans for our life, to humbly follow 
what you have given us in your word. Help us to be strong enough in you to be humble in the world. Father, as we humble ourselves before you, may you do your work through us and may we see that it is you that's at work. I pray in Christ's name, amen.